Hey everyone, today is a special episode because it's our 100th episode. When I started this podcast four years ago, I never could have imagined we'd be here today. And that's thanks to you, our listeners, our supporters, sponsors, and our network Wondery. But before we get into the episode, I wanted to take this opportunity to tell you a few things we've been up to. Over the past six months, we've been redeveloping our website, and we're pretty excited about it because there's one particularly really cool feature. We call it our interactive case map, and it pins each case we've covered from the geographical location it occurred. So if you want to hear a case from the US, Australia, Canada, or any other place in the world, you can find the cases we've covered easily in those particular areas by clicking on the map. I also wanted to let you know that if you ever find yourself wanting to find out more information on a case after listening to one of our episodes, Instagram is the place where we take a bit of a deeper dive into information we didn't cover in the episode. Just follow us at The Minds of Madness. I want to thank you all again for continuing to listen to the show, and to many of you for spreading the word to family, friends, and colleagues. Subscribing to the show or writing a review on iTunes or any other platform are amazing ways to help ensure we continue to grow and up our game with the quality and content of each episode. And a huge thank you to our Patreon supporters. They've helped us with a lot of things like redevelop our website, but more importantly help us cover our production costs and the talented team that work with us. If you'd like to support the show and get some extra perks, you can always sign up to be a Patreon supporter for as little as a dollar a month. Just go to patreon.com slash madnesspod. And with that said, thank you for listening to The Minds of Madness. The opinions expressed in the following episode do not necessarily reflect those of the Minds of Madness podcast. Listener discretion is advised. On November 26, 1986, 25-year-old Josefina Rivera walked the dark streets of Philadelphia looking for work. she just had a fight with her boyfriend and had only one thing on her mind, earn enough money to be able to put a Thanksgiving meal on the table for her young daughter Doreen. Although Josefina could never be certain of her fate each time she set foot into another client's vehicle, she braved those possibilities every night in order to survive. So when a man pulled up in a white Cadillac that evening, she took her chances, not realizing it would be a night that would change her life forever. Join me now as we take a look into one of Philadelphia's darkest and most horrific crimes. You'll learn how six young women fell into the hands of a twisted man's maniacal fantasies and the horrors they would endure in their desperate bid to stay alive. The city of Philadelphia is one of the oldest cities in the United States, dating back to 1682, a hotspot today for tourists and historians from all over the world. 
Known for its cheesesteaks and soft pretzels, what the city is best known for is its history as a crucial setting in the Revolutionary War. But Philadelphia's underbelly has just as much history than what it's most proud of. In the late 60s, the city fell into decline with manufacturing slowly grinding to a halt, causing jobs to become scarce. Crime was rampant, and racial tensions grew to an all-time high. By the late 80s, social unrest and violence started to simmer down, but a clear weariness was felt amongst the residents and the streets began to fall into decay. North Marshall Street was particularly run down, with most of the houses falling apart. Very few homes had more than an arm's reach between them, leaving very little in the way of privacy. But for the people who lived on that street, it was home. One house in particular served as a beacon of hope and comfort. 3520 North Marshall Street was the home of 43-year-old Gary Heidneck, the honorary bishop of a branch of the United Church of the Ministers of God. Gary was born on November 22, 1943 in Eastlake, just outside of Cleveland, Ohio. Following his parents' divorce at age three, Gary suffered a difficult life along with his younger brother Terry, who eventually went to live with their father Michael and his second wife. But life with Michael Heidnick wasn't easy, a strict father who often emotionally abused the two boys. When Gary wet the bed, his father would humiliate him by hanging his wet bedsheets off the balcony. At age six, Gary fell from a tree causing a brain injury. It was at that point, Gary's behavior began to change. The child who used to love and be gentle with animals before was now tying them up and injuring them. At age 17, Gary joined the army but was honorably discharged two years later in 1962 for psychological reasons. Later, he became a licensed nurse practitioner through the VA, a job that didn't particularly suit his personality because he was poor with dealing with patients, leading to multiple jobs lost. In the spring of 1971, while driving for coffee in Philadelphia, Gary suddenly found himself driving west. So far west, in fact, that he found himself in Malibu, standing in the cold waters of the Pacific Ocean. It was there, Gary claimed, to have been visited by the Almighty, instructing him to return to Philadelphia and start a church, focusing on people with developmental delays and physical disabilities. On October 12, 1971, Gary's application to the church was approved and he was appointed the title of bishop with the United Church of the Ministers of God. Every Sunday morning, a handful of devoted followers would flock to Gary's home on North Marshall Street to listen to him preach. Tony Brown, a man with a developmental delay, who regularly attended services at Gary's home, drove the bishop's car to pick up other parishioners. Following the service, it wasn't uncommon for Gary to take the members out to lunch at McDonald's or local favorite, Roy Rogers. Gary Heidnick was known throughout the neighborhood as an intelligent, well-spoken, well-dressed man. He was also fond of the stock exchange and routinely invested large sums of money through his broker. In 1975, Gary opened an account through Merrill Lynch in the church's name, depositing $1,500 for investments. As the years passed by, that sum grew into $545,000, which he used to furnish the church and pay for special trips and meals. 
To the members of the church, Gary Heidnick was their charismatic and generous bishop. Since many of the members were illiterate, Gary painstakingly taught them hymns they could sing and play gospel music on his radio for them to listen to. But Gary rarely let on everything that plagued his mind to his loyal followers, including his plethora of failed relationships, as well as a criminal history. In 1976, Gary was arrested for unlawfully carrying a firearm and aggravated assault after shooting the boyfriend of his former tenant, charges that were ultimately dropped for unknown reasons. Not long after, Gary moved in with a woman with a developmental delay named Anjanette Davidson at a home in North 58th Street. During their brief time together, Anjanette became pregnant. Gary had refused to allow her to receive any outside care, causing Anjanette's older sister to summon a police escort, forcibly taking her to the hospital. Anjanette had a fibroid tumor that wouldn't have allowed for a natural childbirth, and a month later, Anjanette gave birth to a baby girl by C-section. The infant was then immediately placed in foster care, while Anjanette was returned back to live with Gary. Not long after Anjanette's release from the hospital, Gary took her to visit her other sister Alberta at a treatment facility for patients with developmental delays. He then signed out Alberta for a short visit, but never brought her back, sending the center staff into a panic. Immediately, a frantic search for Alberta began. After combing the region and checking Gary's apartment twice, officials finally found Alberta huddled in a storage room below Gary's apartment. An examination later showed signs of sexual trauma and an STD present in her throat. Alberta possessed the mental fortitude of a child, and police doubted it was consensual. Gary was then arrested and charged with kidnapping and rape, but because Alberta wasn't capable of testifying, the felony charges of rape and kidnapping were dropped. Gary was then sentenced to three to seven years in a state prison for the lesser crimes and was transferred between facilities several times. But while he was serving his time, the ruling was overturned and Gary was transferred to a psychiatric facility. In 1983, Gary was cleared for release, and for several years, he seemed to be on a better path, focusing on the church and largely staying out of trouble. But that didn't last. On November 26, 1986, a series of sinister events occurred, a chain that would shock Philadelphia to its core. It was late at night, as 25-year-old Josefina Rivera paced up and down the corner of 3rd and Gerard Street. She was fuming after an argument with her boyfriend, Vincent, and was desperately trying to attract some work. Just then, a white Cadillac pulled up, and a soft, deep voice asked her if she was working. Josefina climbed inside the car, introducing herself as Nicole. Josefina Rivera never complained about her childhood. She attended school, was in a good foster home, but somewhere along the line, developed a drug addiction that led her to the streets to support her habit. That night, the man who pulled up introduced himself as Gary. Before heading back to his house on 3520 North Marshall Street, they stopped at McDonald's for coffee. That's when Josefina broke her first cardinal rule, never go back to a client's home. The lower floor windows of Gary's place had bars on them, and the inside was sparsely furnished. 
Immediately, Josefina began feeling uneasy about the run-down appearance of the home. The walls plastered with $1 American bills and pennies. Anxious to get her job done, get paid, and get out, Josefina declined his offer to watch a movie, claiming she had a babysitter waiting for her at home. After heading to Gary's bedroom and doing exactly what she thought she'd been brought there to do, Josefina started to get dressed. However, she only managed to get her shirt on before she felt Gary's hands clamp tightly around her throat, forcing her to the ground. As she begged him not to hurt her, he snapped a pair of handcuffs on her wrists. Before Josefina could understand what was happening, Gary dragged her downstairs and into his basement, threatening to beat her if she complained. He then fit Josefina's ankles with a steel muffler clamp and shackles, leaving just enough room for her to walk. He then connected it to a chain, fastened tightly around a water pipe against the wall. As Josefina looked around, she could see the basement was outfitted with only a dirty mattress, a small freezer, and a worn-out pool table. To her horror, there was also a shallow pit in the ground beneath the cold and broken concrete. Gary ordered Josefina to sit on the mattress, and she fearfully obeyed. He then fell asleep with his head in her lap, and at some point, in fear and discomfort, Josefina fell asleep as well. The following morning, on November 27th, Josefina awoke shivering alone in the decrepit basement with only a thin shirt for protection against the chill of the underground lair. Just then, the door at the top of the stairs opened, and Gary made his way down, greeting Josephina jovially, offering her an egg sandwich and a glass of orange juice. Terrified he might be trying to poison her, Josephina refused to eat. Next, Gary set to work digging deeper into the broken hole in the ground beneath the concrete floor in the basement. He was making it deeper and wider, almost like an earthen coffin. While he worked, he rambled on and on, with Josefina growing more disturbed by every word he uttered. He talked about three children he'd fathered in the past he now had no contact with. He talked about Anjanette and their baby in the foster system. He also spoke about his ex-wife, a Filipino woman named Betty Disto, who he said had run off with their unborn son. He'd gotten the idea the Filipino women were subservient and thought he'd finally be able to be in complete control, but Betty filed charges against Gary claiming spousal rape and abuse. However, Gary was never convicted because Betty never appeared for the hearing. Gary claimed society owed him a wife and a family. His plan was to confine 10 women in his basement he could impregnate. He'd then finally have children he could raise as his own. Josefina had a sinking suspicion she was the first of the ten women. Gary suddenly stopped digging and approached her, and initiated what would become a daily ritual, unzipping his pants and forcing her to perform sexual acts before leaving her alone in what had become a dungeon to her. When Gary was upstairs, Josefina managed to loosen the bolts from her shackles to give her enough leeway to reach a dingy window in the basement. Prying off plywood that had been screwed over the opening, Josefina pulled her body partially outside and sucked in the icy air. 
She then began frantically screaming for help. But unfortunately, Gary's home was located in a neighborhood that was far from peaceful. It wasn't out of the ordinary to hear someone yelling or screaming at any given time. To Josephina's horror, her cries were ignored by everyone except for Gary. Suddenly, out of nowhere, he appeared in the yard and leaned down to slap her. He then went down into the basement and dragged her back inside. For punishment, he threw her into the pit and covered the opening with a piece of plywood, weighing it down with sandbags. However, it wasn't quite deep enough yet, and Josephina's body was still visible above the hole as she screamed and pleaded for air. Gary couldn't have her screaming and dragged her back out of the pit to beat her, then threw her right back down into the hole again. This time, he forced her to compress her body into a tight ball so the plywood could fit across the opening. After going upstairs for a few minutes, Gary returned, but this time with a radio. He then tuned it into a rock station and turned the volume to the max. After leaving, Gary didn't return again for 27 long, grueling hours. Josephina had been able to track how much time had passed because the DJ announced the time at the top of every hour. Unable to sleep from the never-ending noise, Josephina sobbed in despair. But she wouldn't be alone for very long. Three days after she'd been taken hostage, Gary returned to the basement this time dragging another woman behind him. Once down in the basement, Gary pulled Josephine out of the pit and casually introduced her to 24-year-old Sandra Lindsay. Gary then left again, locking the two women in the basement. As the women began to communicate, Josephina could tell Sandra had some sort of developmental delay. Sandra revealed she was well acquainted with Gary and had briefly been pregnant with his child. Sandra told Josephina she'd been afraid of being a mother and had ended her pregnancy, which had infuriated Gary. As far as he was concerned, she was going to have his baby whether she liked it or not. Gary returned later that evening with dinner, crackers, and a bottle of water. As they ate, he resumed digging in the pit before forcing both of them to engage in sexual acts with him, then leaving them in the darkness for the night. The following morning revealed how impulsive Gary's decision to take Sandra had been because Sandra's mother and sister were now pounding at his door. Gary knew Sandra's family through a mutual acquaintance, Tony Brown, who knew where to go looking for her. However, Gary was able to convince them to leave and then force Sandra to write a letter to her family saying she was fine and would call them soon. He then drove all the way to New York City to mail the letter convinced he'd thrown her family off the trail. But Sandra's family wasn't fully convinced and suspected Gary knew more than he was letting on. They continued to come around, pounding on the door, even convincing the police to do a welfare check. But when officers came by, Gary never answered the door, so police decided to track down Tony Brown. But when Tony provided the spelling for Gary's last name, he spelt it incorrectly. That meant there were no matches in the police database for Gary. When Sandra's mother took the letter she received to police, they only further disregarded her daughter as little more than a grown runaway of little concern. On December 22nd, 
Gary struck again. This time, the unfortunate woman to cross Gary's path was single mother, 19-year-old Lisa Thomas. After joining Gary for a drink and then heading back to his home for sex, Gary chained her to the water pipe in the basement, just like the others. When he brought Lisa down, Sandra and Josephina were still trapped in the pit, but Gary soon happily introduced them all before treating them to peanut butter sandwiches. Then he demanded Lisa take part in the same sexual routine he'd forced the other women to live by. Ten days later on January 1st, 1987, Gary brought home yet another woman, 23-year-old Deborah Dudley. From the get-go, Deborah became the bane of Gary's existence because Deborah was a fighter. As a hierarchy began to form among the captives, Deborah made it known she wasn't going to break as easily as Gary had hoped. At the same time, Josephina was beginning to learn how to manipulate Gary into treating her better than the others, leading her to become something of a favorite. Gary soon began forcing the women to beat each other, as well as engage in sexual acts with one another for his own twisted amusement. The women had to work their way up to a more comfortable existence. When they first entered the basement, they slept in the pit. If they complied, they would graduate to an inflatable mattress, then to a real mattress. Their already minimal nutrition began to lapse further when he started giving them dog food to eat. If they behaved in a way that pleased him, they'd be rewarded with treats like cookies. The women soon began begging to be the one Gary would choose to have sex with in hopes of being given a treat. But Gary wasn't done building his harem. On January 18th, 18-year-old Jacqueline Askins became his latest victim. A woman so petite, her shackles slid right off her ankles. Gary was feeling good about his accomplishments. He'd managed to add another hostage to his basement, and to top it all off, it was Josephina's birthday. As a rare gift, Gary decided to celebrate by allowing all the women to order from a Chinese food takeout menu. On February 1st, Sandra incurred Gary's wrath when she tried to push the plywood off the opening of the pit. When she refused to eat, Gary strung her up on the ceiling, hanging her from an eye hook by her handcuffs. Gary forced breadcrumbs in her mouth as she hung there for a full week ignoring her as she began vomiting and complaining of a fever. On February 7th, Josephina was the first to notice Sandra wasn't moving. Despite all the women desperately crying for her to wake up, she never did. Gary angrily declared she was faking it and pulled her down, kicking her into the hole. He then gave the rest of the women ice cream from the freezer while they waited for Sandra to move. Gary checked for a pulse and found none. He was furious. He'd lost the possibility of any children she might have carried for him and decided the rest of the women needed to assist him in dismembering her body. Each of the women were then forced to remove various limbs. Afterward, Gary took Sandra's remains upstairs and after a while, the sound of a power saw could be heard. A few hours later, Gary's dogs, Flaky and Bear, fumbled down the stairs. In their mouths, they carried a bone with chunks of meat still clinging to them. Horrified, the women could only assume 
they were carrying pieces of Sandra. Gary then attempted to dispose of the rest of Sandra's remains by scorching them in the oven. On the stovetop, he boiled her head in a tall pot. A sickening odor soon began to waft throughout the whole neighborhood, a putrid smell no one could deny. Aggravated neighbors immediately called the police. A rookie cop answered the call. As he knocked on Gary's door, he couldn't help but feel slightly apprehensive about what he might find. When Gary answered, he calmly told the officer he'd simply burnt his dinner, a pot roast he had in the oven. Although he'd managed to ward off the policeman, the whole incident had put Gary on edge and he was in no mood to deal with attitude. Deborah was still refusing to behave, even after he showed her what he'd done to Sandra's body and threatened her with the same fate. Gary then used a blender to emulsify the rest of Sandra's remains, which he mixed with dog food and fed to the rest of the women. Gary had become paranoid that his captives were planning to overpower him. That's when Josephina tipped him off to an actual escape plan the other women had been hatching. They were all then severely punished. That is, except for Josephina. The worst punishment came when Gary gouged their ears with screwdrivers, attempting to deafen them. Josephina was again exempt. As Gary's paranoia grew, his forms of torture became more extreme, now introducing his captives to electric shock. After filling a pit with water, he used a cut extension cord with an exposed bare wire, which he then dangled into the pit. The wire was placed on the chains binding the women, sending vicious shocks rippling through their bodies as they screamed in agony. On March 18th, Josephina was forced to electrocute her fellow captives, shocking Deborah's chain directly. Just seconds before falling limp against Lisa and Jacqueline in the pit, Deborah screamed out, He's killing me. As he'd done with Sandra, Gary initially claimed Deborah was faking it until he actually dragged her out. He then casually made the women dog food sandwiches before pulling Josephina aside and forcing her to write a note declaring her guilt for Deborah's death and making her sign it. It was his idea of a countermeasure to prevent her from going to the police. Deborah's body was then left on the floor overnight before Gary placed her in the freezer the following morning. On March 20th, Gary and Josephina drove out to Pine Barrens, New Jersey, where Gary dumped Deborah's body in a heavily wooded area. Since Deborah's death, Josephina, who was still going by the name Nicole, had risen to a higher status in Gary's eyes, and he treated her less like a captive and more like a girlfriend. While the other women remained chained up in the basement, he often took Josephina out to eat, making sure they were seen together in public. In the meantime, Sandra's family was still coming by, pounding on the door. Gary felt confident that if people believed he had a girlfriend, suspicion on him about Sandra's disappearance would drop. He also felt certain Josephina had developed Stockholm Syndrome and would never betray him. On March 23rd, Gary struck yet again. He was determined to make up for the loss of Sandra and Deborah. This time, he took Josephina with him on his hunt for another woman. 
As they drove around town in his white Cadillac, they spotted 24-year-old Agnes Adams, who Josephina knew as Vicky. The two women had worked together briefly at a gentleman's club called Hearts and Flowers. Gary also knew Agnes from previous encounters. And just like before, he took Agnes back to his place as he had the others and cuffed her, dragging her down into the basement. Gary told Josephina he wanted to capture another woman the next night, but Josephina was getting ready to make her move. She'd been working on him for months, building his trust, gaining more and more freedom under his control. Finally, on March 24th, Josephina managed to convince Gary to let her see her family. Amazingly, he agreed to allow it, still believing she'd never betray him. He warned her, however, that if she tried to run, he'd kill the others. Gary agreed to drop Josephina off at a gas station on 6th and Gerard, on the condition she'd bring back another woman when she returned at midnight. But the minute Gary was out of sight, Josephina hightailed it to a payphone. At first, police didn't buy her story, but after sending two officers to meet Josephine at her boyfriend's home, the ominous sight of her bruises and scarred body changed their minds. The officers hurried to the gas station where Gary was waiting. Surprised, Gary raised his hands, asking if he'd failed to make his child support. Gary was then arrested and taken to the sex crimes unit. At 4.30 a.m. on March 25, 1987, a search warrant was granted, and Sergeant Frank McCloskey and a few other officers arrived at 3520 North Marshall Street to investigate. As law enforcement entered the rundown building, Officer Savage and Sergeant McCloskey headed for the basement, where they discovered two women chained and sleeping on a mattress. When they announced their arrival, the women bolted awake and began screaming. They were both nude from the waist down, when they realized they were being rescued, they kissed the hands of the officers as they sobbed in relief. Agnes Adams was then freed from the pit where she'd been trapped. As Officer Savage inspected the kitchen, he found a badly burned and charred stockpot on the stove, as well as a blackened roasting pan in the oven, containing what looked like a single rib. He also discovered a human forearm inside the freezer. It was all he could do to keep from vomiting. By the next day, news of Gary's crimes erupted across the country. Everyone wanted to know who this mad preacher named Gary Heidnick was. As the media devoured the story, police dove headfirst into the grueling investigation, cataloging every object in Gary's home. They also began meticulously digging up the backyard, Every suspicious object was then carefully identified. Tony Brown loudly proclaimed his involvement in the whole affair and was charged as an accomplice. However, since none of the women recalled ever seeing him, his case was dismissed on May 1, 1987. Gary, meanwhile, was left to sit in prison as he tried to find a lawyer to represent him. He finally settled on Charles Peruto Jr., when the lawyer heard Gary Heidnick wanted to hire him, he was nothing less than shocked. But after listening to Gary's insane story, and somewhat against his own better judgment, he decided to take the case. While awaiting trial, 
Gary had to be put on suicide watch after attempting to hang himself in the showers. During the preliminary hearing on April 23, 1987, Lisa, Josephina, and Jacqueline testified about all they had endured, painfully describing the brutality Gary had forced upon them. On May 14th, the status hearing was underway, and it was then Gary began building his image. As he hobbled into the courtroom like a drunken man, he snapped a stiff military salute to the judge and answered, yes sir, to every question. Regardless of whether or not it actually fit as an answer, Gary pleaded not guilty. The case was then handed to Judge Lynn Abraham, known throughout the city as a tough cookie, also known to despise the term plea bargain. On May 16, 1988, the trial began and Gary shuffled into the courtroom. Although his clothes were clean, they were rumpled and his hair was unkempt. It was all by design. Gary's lawyer, Charles Peruto Jr., wanted his client to look as mentally unwell as possible. On June 20th, 1988, the trial was finally underway, and Charles Peruto wasted no time attempting to paint his client's mind as heavily damaged because of military LSD experiments performed on him during his service. Judge Abraham shot that explanation down due to the crippling lack of evidence. The prosecution, on the other hand, was confident they had enough evidence and witness testimony to convince the jurors of Gary's guilt. As the prosecution went into the gruesome details of everything the women had experienced, they were also sure to mention what Gary had done with Sanders' remains. Peruto stressed to the jury, Gary Heidnick was far from innocent, but was extremely troubled and hadn't intended to kill Sandra or Deborah. During Josephina's testimony, she described in great detail everything she'd endured, including Gary's dreams of impregnating 10 captives and starting a family. Josephina also described deplorable hygienic conditions that lasted until after Christmas, when Gary finally began allowing the women up to the bathroom one at a time for a short shower. All of the women testified, but it was clear. Josephina's words had cut the defense like a knife. Even when Peruto cross-referenced her, she never faltered in her story. When medical examiner Paul Hoyer stepped forward, he described the body parts recovered from Gary's freezer. Unique aspects to the bones and teeth matched Sandra's physiology. However, Hoyer wasn't able to determine her manner of death. By the time psychiatrist Dr. Clancy McKenzie testified for the defense, Peruta was fit to be tied. McKenzie broke every script they'd rehearsed ahead of time, and rather than hindering the prosecution's arguments, the doctor's testimony ended up aiding it. McKenzie refused to admit Gary Heidnick wasn't entirely in his right mind. By June 27, 1988, it was finally time for closing statements. Peruto claimed all Gary wanted was a family, and the deaths had both been accidental. The prosecution, on the other hand, painted Gary as a man who knew exactly what he wanted and just how to get it. On June 30th, the jury retired to deliberate and returned on the following day with a verdict, guilty on all counts. Under Pennsylvania law, the jury also laid down the penalty. Gary Heidnick was sentenced to death. 
On July 6, 1999, at age 55, Gary was put to death by lethal injection. His last meal included two cups of coffee and two slices of cheese pizza. He had no final words. Sandra and Deborah's families attended the execution, as did Jacqueline and her relatives. Josefina Rivera, however, did not. She felt it would have been better for him to sit in a 4x4 cell. It's believed Gary Heidnick in part inspired the fictitious serial killer Buffalo Bill in the film Silence of the Lambs. Like Gary, Buffalo Bill too kept his victims captive in a pet. Getting inside the mind of a madman is a dark and disturbing place. Clinical psychologist Dr. Christina Frizzani explains the culminating factors that led Gary Heidnick to follow through with his twisted fantasy. There are a lot of different factors that impact mental illness. Not just sets of symptoms, but also context, genetics, family history. In this case, there was documented mental illness in the family, as well as childhood trauma. There were immediate family members who had committed or attempted suicide. There are reports that Gary Heidnick's father humiliated and bullied him as a child. And some mental health issues can be linked primarily to biology and neurology, and some more to social history and past experience. But it's often a combination of both nature and nurture. Mr. Heidnick was reportedly diagnosed with schizoid personality disorder as an adult. Personality disorders describe sets of personality traits that are rigid and pervasive. So even though we all have aspects of many of the personality disorders that are outlined in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, in order to actually have a personality disorder, one has to show many of the listed symptoms from the onset of adulthood and then continue to have this combination of symptoms through time and different life contexts. It has to be a whole pattern of behavior that impairs an individual's functioning, not just on a personal or professional level, but in all contexts of their lives. Schizoid personality disorder does share aspects with schizophrenia, but it's more of a set of consistent and dysfunctional personality traits that make it really difficult to treat. Another distinction is that schizophrenia often involves invasive symptoms that we call positive symptoms, referring to something being added to someone's perception, like hallucinations or delusions. Whereas someone with schizoid personality disorder doesn't have hallucinations or delusions, even though they may have odd thinking and perceptions that are outside of the norm. Someone diagnosed with schizoid personality disorder seems stoic and self-sufficient, withdrawn, aloof, they genuinely prefer to be alone. And that impacts their interpersonal relationships, especially romantically. Sometimes people with this disorder are celibate or asexual, but when they are in romantic or sexual relationships, their interests might border on voyeurism or perversity. So they might have sexual interests that are outside of the norm or even dangerous or making others uncomfortable. Any person who struggles with disordered personality will have difficulty in relationships. But when someone has an emotionally disorganized or abusive childhood, their cognitive and emotional development are really impacted. So it might change those sets of symptoms to be even more pervasive. They might have depression, anxiety, abusive behavior as adults, things like that. 
And in a case where an individual's developmental years included being physically or emotionally abused or both, a person whose brain chemistry is already predisposed to odd thinking and behavior might then also develop behavioral patterns that are even more dysfunctional. According to many statistics, about 1% of American children are abused. But of that 1%, those children are nine times more likely to be involved in criminal activity as adults, which illustrates how strong the link between nature and nurture can be. In this case of Gary Heidnick, imagine being made fun of, ridiculed, and having nowhere to turn for support for your entire upbringing. Then, as an adult, making enough money that you have freedom and resources, but then you also have all the traits of schizoid personality disorder and a history of trauma. In this extreme case, it was a recipe for disaster. After years of having no control and absorbing so much grief, Mr. Heidnick was only interested in women that he could pay, capture, and control. Not just the victims of his final crimes, but also his first captured victim and his mail-order bride. The basement of 3520 North Marshall Street has since been filled with concrete, and the upper floors transformed into apartments. But the horrors experienced by six very courageous young women will never be buried, having endured every possible form of torture imaginable. But ultimately, none of Gary's tactics to manipulate Degrade and dominate these women prevailed against the strength of their human spirit to survive. Although Gary thought his best bet to achieve his deranged fantasy was to target women who appeared to be the most vulnerable of our society, he was wrong. Six incredibly strong women proved that. Gary may not have had any final words to say. The survivors of this horrific case, however, did and continue to, to this day. A special thanks to Dr. Christina Frizzani for sharing her insights in this episode. And now I would like to introduce you to the podcast, Philotimo Life. A podcast about death? Kinda morbid, isn't it? That response is exactly why we're doing it. Welcome to Philotimo Life, a podcast where we talk about death to get a better outlook on life. My name is Maria Vasiliu, and like everyone, I've experienced loss. And through my thanatology studies, I've come to realize we need to become more death literate. To do that, I'll discuss attitudes, experiences, legality, and even pop culture to change the way we think about mortality. I'll be joined by Amos Samal, comedian and writer, whose dark humor and quick wit make our conversations a little less morbid. We talk to professionals who deal with death, as well as people who've experienced loss to get their personal perspectives. You can find us online at Philotima Life. That's P-H-I-L-O-T-I-M-O-L-I-F-E. Subscribe now to join us as we breathe some life into the conversation around death. The Minds of Madness can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play, and all other podcast platforms. Ad-free episodes of this show are available on Stitcher Premium. If you would like to support this show 
and get some extra perks, including extra content, early release, and ad-free episodes, go to patreon.com slash madnesspod. You can find our website by going to mindsofmadnesspodcast.com. To find us on Facebook and Instagram, search The Minds of Madness. And on Twitter, using the handle at MadnessPod. And finally, the closing track, Feel the Madness, is provided by The Funkors. You can find them at the record label's website by going to goldenerrorecords.com.au slash G-E. I hope they can't get in cause I'm not prepared to run I can feel the madness Someone's standing at my door I hope they can't get in cause I'm not prepared to run